0: Let's pray together. Father, as always, we want to pause and take a moment and recognize two main things. That you are worthy and God, we are helpless. You are God and we are not. And God, the reason why it's so good for us to remember those two things is You are a God that wants to help. You are a God that wants to work on our behalf. All we have to do is ask. In fact, it actually honors you for us to ask. And so God, as we continue in our gathering today and open your word, we believe that the confession that Peter made in John 6 when he said, Lord, to whom can we go? You alone have the words of life. God, we believe that these words are life, but we need you to help us to see them, to hear them, to understand them. And so God, we pray that you would help us now by the power of your Holy Spirit to see how you're working. And God, help me to communicate this as always in a way that honors you, and is then helpful to us. God, we thank you for this word. And God, particularly the word for today, God is so important for us to understand because it's so informative of how you work in our life. Not just to save us, but to sanctify us, to make us holy, to make us like you. And so God, we ask you to do that now through the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, if you got a Bible, we're in John chapter 21, verses 15 through 19, and we're picking up on a story that we did the first part last week, verses one through 14, where Jesus institutes a different kind of thing. If you've been growing up in church, you've been around church, you've probably heard about the Last Supper when Jesus you know, has this last meal with his disciples before he's to be crucified, well, in this story, we're not talking about the last supper, we're talking about the last breakfast, all right? This is the last breakfast that Jesus has with his disciples, which is one of the reasons why I love Jesus so much is he does things around food. I can get down with that, All right. And so he institutes the Last Supper, and we still take communion. We still take the Lord's Supper. We'll do that. Uh, in fact, a few times coming up here, we always take time throughout the year to have what we call worship weekends, where we just kind of stop our normal kind of routine and spend time, worship God. We take communion together. We pray for one another. And so that'll be coming up in a few weeks. And that whole process is important, because Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me, right? Right? That's when we recalibrate our mind around the cross and what it was that Jesus did. But we would be mistaken if we thought that that's the only thing that Jesus did around the Last Supper. We would miss what Jesus does around the last breakfast. And and in fact, what we're going to see today is after Jesus has this meal with his disciples and with some of the verses that we just had on screen that we talked about last week, after Jesus has this meal, he's going to engage with Peter specifically after this meal. And what I'm hoping that we will see is in the same way that Jesus engages Peter is how he engages us. Or better yet, the process that Jesus takes Peter through is the same process that he takes us through. And so we're gonna read this story and then hopefully understand kind of a greater principle, if you will, that Jesus is taking Peter through this and that he wants to take us through this as well. So let's go, John chapter 21. I'm gonna read verses 15 through 17 first and then we'll stop and chat about it. it. says, when they had finished breakfast, all right? So he invited them in, said, come and have breakfast. Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? More than likely that's referencing the other disciples around he said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. And that kind of stopped right there. Be like, Okay, that's cool. Jesus, do you love me? Yeah, feed my lambs. All right? But Jesus has got more. Verse 16, He said to him a second time. In fact, you're going to see this phrase, He said to him about 10 times, all right? He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, and you gotta know at this point in time, it's starting to mess with Peter. Do you love me? And look at this, Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Now, what's significant about this moment is Jesus is doing something very intentional here. This is not Jesus, like, as a jealous boyfriend, if you would, saying, do you love me? Do you love me not? you like, Jesus picking off rose petals here. Peter, I'm just kind of confused, bro, because like one minute you're cutting off dude's ears, the other minute you're denying me. I don't know where you're at, man. This, this is not the DTR that we used to call it, which was define the relationship, right? Like, are, this isn't Jesus like, hey, are we in the friend zone? This is not that. Jesus is doing something very intentional here. And I mentioned it last week. And the setting... Is a charcoal fire. Now, the reason why that's important is there's only two times in this gospel where the phrase charcoal fire is mentioned. In fact, one of them was in John chapter 18. And in John chapter 18, we talked about this if you were here, the charcoal fire that was mentioned. Was when Jesus had been arrested and taken to be questioned, and Peter is standing out in the courtyard and he is warming himself around a charcoal fire. And then he is asked, you remember how many times? Three times, if he knows Jesus. And three times. Peter denies Jesus, just like Jesus said he would. He said, You're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows. Peter does, then the rooster crows. So I want you to see this. Jesus is intentionally recreating the exact same scene of Peter's greatest failure. Peter's greatest failure. I mean, when Peter cut off the dude's ear, you could at least like applaud him for for being vigilant and, you know, like being uh, really, really passionate, even though he was dumb. But around the charcoal fire, it's hard to applaud Peter for anything because he was a coward. I mean, he cowered back, he was afraid. And he'd been walking with Jesus for three years. And all that led him was to deny Jesus three times. And so Jesus recreates the scene of Peter's greatest failure, and he does it by instituting another scenario with a charcoal fire. And the whole point of John telling us this is not because Jesus needs to be affirmed by Peter's devotion. Let me say it like this. This whole scenario is not for Jesus's benefit. Jesus isn't asking because he doesn't know. You need to know that. Whenever God asks you a question, it's not because he doesn't know the answer. It's like, and I've said this many times, like when, Jesus, uh, when God shows up in the garden with Adam and Eve and he's like, where are you? It's not like God's like, I can't find you, oh No. Now God knew where they were. They didn't know where they were. And, and this is true if you're in any kind of counseling form, it is so important for those that are in a dysfunctional situation to actually see and name that they're in a dysfunctional situation. So when God asks a question, he's asking for your benefit, not for his. So when God is asking Peter these three questions, it's not because Jesus needs to be affirmed. Peter does. Peter needs to be affirmed, and you can kind of see it as it escalates in the questions. The first time, Jesus says, hey, do you love me? It's almost like Peter's like, you know I love you, man. This is like the person that's like, I don't have to say I love you. They know it, right? Oh, they they know I love them. I don't have to say it because, you know, people just hate hearing you say I love you, right? Right? This is like the dad or the husband, it's not uniquely a male thing, but a lot of times it can be, where, oh, they know I love them. I mean, I remember having conversations with my dad and, and friends of mine that grew up that, that sadly would say things like, you know, I never remember a time when my dad said, I love you. I mean, I, I knew he took care of us and he did all these things and I, I knew he loved us, but he didn't say it. And so you can kind of imagine on the first time when Jesus asked Peter, hey, do you love me? Peter's like, I don't have to say it, Jesus. You know I love you. I mean, I just jumped into the water and swam to you, right? I mean, that was like way better than anything you've ever seen on Notebook. Come on, Jesus. Titanic, she ain't got nothing on me, right? I just threw myself into the water. But Jesus asked again, Simon, Son John, do you love me? Peter's like, bro, I just said I love you. you gotta, I got to say it again? Right? And, and this is anytime time or in any kind of relationship, you got to understand, it's not just about saying it once so you can check it off. Right? Like, you know. Come on, man. You know I love you. And then Jesus goes there. He asks a third time, and it's at this point in time John tells us Peter's grieved. He's grieved by this. He is deeply upset about this, and honestly, I don't think, well, this is my opinion. I don't think it's just that Jesus asked a third time here. John doesn't tell us, but again, if you're thinking about this, I got to wonder if it's at this moment, Peter is reminded about the fact when the last time he was around a charcoal fire, what happened three times, that he denied three times, and now his love is being questioned three times. So you gotta wonder if Peter wasn't just grieved by what Jesus was asking him, but Peter was grieved by the fact that he had denied him. Like, it was eating him up, it was consuming Peter. You know, Peter had been instituted by Jesus, just like the others, to be a disciple to be an apostle, to go out and work for Jesus, right? To go out and be fishers of men. I mean, that's what Jesus said when he called Peter. And don't you know that here's Peter not fishing for men, he's fishing for fish. Here's Peter because he's denied Jesus. He's really wrestling and struggling with his calling, with his identity, with his failures, And then Jesus shows up, and now Jesus is questioning him three times about his love and devotion. you got to know at this moment that Peter, I mean, he's in a dark place. He's wrestling. He's grieved. But Jesus is doing something very intentional here. And the thing that Jesus is doing that is so important for us to understand, because I'm going to show you in a second, this is the same process that God takes us through is Jesus is recreating the scenario because at the scene of his greatest failure is exactly where Jesus wants to meet Peter, is exactly where Jesus wants to redeem Peter, restore Peter, and not just give Peter a second chance, I think that's what we think sometimes. You're like, oh, Jesus has just given him a second chance. And people like to emphasize, oh, God is the God of second chances. And I get what they're trying to say, and I'm not trying to be you know, obtuse about it, but that's honestly a little bit of a pet peeve of mine because the idea that God gives us a second chance is the thought that we would actually get it on the second chance. Like, if God gave me a second chance, it's like, oh, God, thank you for the second chance. Well, I'm still going to fail again. Right, So I need a third chance and a fourth chance. I mean, my daughter's a 13-year-old. She's in the seventh grade. If I asked her to take the MCAT, which is trying to get into middle school and she miserably failed it, I'd be like, that's okay, baby. That was your first try. I'm gonna give you a second chance. How do you think she's gonna do the second time through? Still gonna fail it. So, so God is not giving Peter here a second chance because you'll see next week, Peter still messes up. No, he's not giving him a second chance. He's not giving him a do-over. He's recreating him. See, life with Jesus is not a second chance at your old life. It's a whole brand new life. It's not a second chance to try to get something right where you got it wrong, because that's still a works-based thing. No, it is bringing something new out of something that you killed. Jesus is giving Peter here a new life. He's giving Peter here a new commission. He's redeeming Peter. He's restoring Peter. And how does he do it? Watch this. He does it because Jesus is trying to consume the thing that's probably consuming Peter. Let me say it like this. Jesus is going to destroy the thing that's destroying Peter. it's his guilt. In fact, if you're taking notes, here's my first point, and then I'll try to show you this biblically. This fire was consuming what could have consumed him. This fire, this charcoal fire that Jesus is doing here, this scenario where Jesus creates this charcoal fire, this fire is symbolic. It's no coincidence that this is around a fire again. And it's no coincidence that it was around a fire the first time, that Peter messed it all up. Because see, this fire is symbolic of a greater fire that's there. This fire is symbolic of the greater fire, which is Jesus himself. Jesus is the consuming fire that's going to consume or burn up the thing that was burning Peter up. Let me give you some biblical context for this. We gotta go back into the Old Testament. Deuteronomy chapter four, you can just write this down as a reference. Deuteronomy chapter four, verse 20, and then verse 23 and 24. This is Moses talking to Israel. He said, but the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt. That's important, iron furnace, to be a people of his own inheritance as you are this day. Listen to verse 23. Take care lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you and make a carved image, the form of anything that the Lord your God has forbidden you. Verse 24, here's the line. For the Lord your God is a what? Consuming fire. The Lord your God is a consuming fire. A jealous God. Now don't miss this. There's two references to fire in these verses. Two references to fire. The first one is when they were in Egypt. And if you know the story of Israel, they were slaves in Egypt for 400 years. And what they were tasked with doing was building things. One of the Biggest reasons Egypt had all these amazing structures is because they would employ the slaves like uh, Israel and they had to build all these things. And Pharaoh was a very harsh taskmaster and he would make them work overtime and double with no breaks, with no rests, which is why when they left out of the Passover, now as a celebration of the Passover, they would sit back, kick up their feet, saying, we can rest now, we've been freed. So watch this, God takes them out Of this fiery furnace. Because Pharaoh and the world was using a fire to destroy them. But then Moses says, but make no mistake. He's taking you out of one fire and bringing you to another fire. But this fire is not there to destroy you. It's there to deliver you because this is not the fire of judgment, but this is the fire of freedom. This isn't the fire that's meant to destroy you. This is the fire that's meant to refine you. And this is where most believers stumble in their walk with God. What happens is we forget That when God saves us out of the fire, again, there's all these references in the Bible to fire as judgment. Hell is a fire without end, right? And so that represents judgment. But then there's all these references as well in the Bible that fire represents the presence of God. And in fact, I got a quote here on the screen. I want to show you. It comes from the Bible project. I just thought this was so cool. Listen, it says, fire is an important image in the Bible about God's presence. God appeared in a burning bush to Moses, in flames over Mount Sinai, and in a pillar of fire over the tabernacle, and so the flames at Pentecost. Listen to this phrase. This is the key thing. This is the marking out of temple space. Places where heaven and earth meet become where God's appearance manifests itself. What Moses was saying in Deuteronomy chapter four is God didn't just deliver you from the fire of judgment. He didn't just save you, but he's actually going to use fire to sanctify you. And how he's going to sanctify you, watch this, is he's gonna burn up the things in you that are burning you up. He's going to consume the things in you that are consuming you. If you look up the word consume, there's a picture of me at Whataburger. No, there's really not. But but the whole idea of consuming is it's eating you. When you consume something, you're eating it, right? You're destroying it. And here's what Peter failed to realize, and here's what so many of us failed to realize. God didn't just get us out of Egypt. He's got to get Egypt out of us. See, God wasn't just saving them from their outward oppressors, He was also delivering them from their inward ones. And this is where we fail to realize the process of God. Because we know, again, this has been used ad nauseum in churches. How do you purify gold? With fire. And you turn up the heat. And then all the impurities come to the top and you scrape them off. As one theologian said, He saves you from one fire only to throw you into another one. But watch this this fire is not meant to destroy you, it's meant to deliver you. But the reason why so many of us fall away in this process is we don't realize that Jesus is doing something very intentional in our lives, He's consuming the things that are consuming us. He's getting the world and our flesh out of us. And that's what he's doing with Peter here. And I love how the, this quote said, it's the marking out of temple space. You know, fire was used in the Bible Just like Moses, right? When Moses shows up, the burning bush, it was on fire, but it wasn't consumed. And what does God say to Moses? Take off your sandals because you're standing on holy ground. See, it wasn't the ground that made it holy. It was the presence of the fire. Because when the fire comes in contact, and this is what's amazing. I'll show you this in just a second. It's actually purifying the ground. Now, we know that fire in the wrong hands can burn something up, right? It's very dangerous. So fire in the hands of the world is gonna kill you. Fire in the hands of an Egyptian Pharaoh is gonna burn you up, but fire in the hands of God is gonna deliver you. Here's what's amazing as I was thinking about this You know, I'm a hunter, and I like hunting, and and as I was kind of preparing my hunt for last year and planting stuff and thinking about it and cleaning out, you know, dead stuff, I was doing a lot of research on how to do like a controlled burn, because when you do a controlled burn on a ground, it actually is very beneficial, and then I looked up the process, and I was amazed at what I found. In fact, I'm just going to read it to you, like a low controlled burn, watch this, Fire, I want you to hear these words. Fire chemically converts. Chemically converts nutrients, watch this, that are bound in dead tissues. Fire chemically converts. Have you ever heard that word convert before? Where have you heard that before? Oh yeah, Church. Because what is conversion? Conversion is when you go from one form to another form. And the reason why forestry people and deer hunters all over the world, right, will do a low-controlled burn because there's dead matter on the ground, and if you do a low-controlled burn, it will actually chemically convert the nutrients that are locked in by death. Do you see that? God put the supernatural in the natural. Or, or the super is just a super version of the natural. And this is why this is so important. Because so many of us get so disillusioned when God saves us out of the fires of hell. He saves us out of the fires of judgment, just like he said to them, out of the iron furnace... And then now we're walking with God, and we're in this in-between time of this restoration. Remember, we talked about this a few weeks ago. We've been redeemed, but we haven't been restored yet. And so many of us are disillusioned because God takes us out of the fire, and he throws us in another one. And he starts turning up the heat, right? It's like the phrase, out of the frying pan and into the fire, And here's why I think, sadly, there's a lot of preachers out there today that have lied to you. And a lot of times it's called the prosperity gospel. And I do believe God wants to prosper you. Hear me. But I think God wants to prosper you through a process that's going to be foreign to you. He's going to prosper you through a process of actually delivering you through the fire. See, I think God recreated this charcoal fire moment as a way for Peter to understand, hey, Peter, I know you miserably failed before, bro. But Peter, it's only a few weeks from now that you're about to stand up and open your mouth again. But this time when you open your mouth, I'm not gonna have to say to you, get behind me, Satan. This time when you open your mouth, you're actually gonna catch men. In fact, Acts 2 tells us 3,000 of them, but I can't trust you to stand up and speak for me until I've purified you, until I've refined you. When I was growing up, I don't know if the kids say this anymore, but especially in middle school and high school, we would talk about somebody like, oh, she's fine. Oh, he's fine. I don't know what they say now. I'm not even going to try. All right. But I was thinking about that. And I thought, well, in the word refine is the word fine. And and here's what I thought about. When God called you, you was ugly. (laughs) Welcome to church, right? You were ugly and you were useless. In fact, if you read on in Deuteronomy chapter 7, Moses says, when God called you, it's not because you were awesome, Israel. In fact, you were the fewest of the people on the planet. God didn't choose the beautiful and the amazing. No. And and when you read Paul in the New Testament, he said, God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. That's the only reason why I'm a pastor. But watch this. But through the process, he's making me fine. He's making me beautiful. He's making me pure. He's refining me. In fact, let me give you another Old Testament reference just so that you understand this is how God works. Zechariah chapter 13, verse eight and nine. In the whole land, declares the Lord, two-thirds shall be cut off and perish, and one-third shall be left alive. Now, this is prophetic, talking about what's going to happen in the future. And what, again, I say this all the time, what trips me out about people, they start looking at two-thirds, one-thirds, and they start doing all this numerology and math stuff, and this is the two-thirds, this is the one-third, this is what's going to happen, and they totally miss the next part. Look at the next part, verse 9. And I will put this third, the one-third that were left alive, I will put this third into the fire, and what? Refine them. As one refines silver and tests them as gold is testing tested. They will call upon my name and I will answer them. I will say they are my people and they will say the Lord is my God. See, watch this. There's a process where the one third is saved. And watch this. And then... In the future, the one-third will say, this is my God, and God will say, these are my people. In fact, that's exactly what the book of Revelation says will happen when God restores things. What happens in between the one-third left alive and them calling out, this is my God? The process of refining. The process of a second charcoal fire that Jesus, watch this, invites you into. Hey, come and have breakfast with me. And I mentioned this last week. If you were here, if you weren't, you can go back and watch this. That is an invitation to rest. But watch this. That's not an invitation for God to rest. That's an invitation for you to rest, for you to come and sit with Jesus as Jesus turns up the fire on you. As Jesus starts Let me say it like this, you're not refining yourself. He's refining you. He is turning up the heat in your life and starting to consume the things that would have consumed you had he not done this. Things like your doubt, your fear, your guilt, your shame. He's gotta burn all that up before he can trust you to be fishers of men. See, I read the quote to you when it said, this fire in the Old Testament represented the marking out of the temple space. Well, I've said this many times. In 1 Corinthians chapter six, Paul says, our body is now his temple. So watch this. When the Holy Spirit indwells us, you wanna know what he's starting to do? He's starting to mark out his space in your body. He's starting to mark out temple space in your body. And how does he do that? He does that with fire. He's purifying you and he's marking out space, saying, "Your brain is mine. that's my place for my prayer. Your heart is mine, your hands, your feet, all of the members of your body. this is now holy space. And when God comes into the co- in contact. With us, you know the whole story. God can't be in the presence of sin. What's well, better yet to understand this sin can't be in the presence of God because God obliterates it. Right? It's like darkness has no choice when light shows up. And so when God delivers you from the fire of the judgment of hell, He's going to put you into another fire, but this fire is meant to refine you because the presence of God is coming and indwelling every part of you, and the Spirit of God is marking out the temple of your body with the fire of his presence and burning up everything that had been burning you up before. That's what's going on here. That's what I believe that Jesus is doing here. Because see, Peter, we know this, Peter was impetuous, right? Peter was quick to speak and slow to listen. Peter, in fact, when Jesus, I mean, in this story, when Jesus showed up and the moment that John says, that is the Lord, what does Peter do? Right, jumps into the water. And then what happens? All his boys are left back in the boat to do the hard work to get all the fish to the shore. That is horrible leadership. You understand that, right? See, a leader isn't just worried about getting himself to the shore, but about getting the whole boat to the shore. See, Peter had zealousness for Jesus, but he didn't have no sense. Peter was still self-focused. He couldn't be a leader that was trusted. Because a leader, when they see, there's Jesus, we're trying to get to Jesus, a leader doesn't say, I'm gonna swim to shore, y'all got this. A leader says, no, boys, there's Jesus, come on, let's row together. See, Peter was still in this in-between time, in-between the fires, but here's the good news, here's the good news, Peter got it. He's not gonna get it next week, you'll see. But he's going to get it eventually because he writes two letters, First and Second Peter. And what's amazing, in his first letter, in 1 Peter, you can go read this later, but in the very first chapter, he talks about gold being refined by fire. And it was too long of a quote, so I'm going to show you in 1 Peter chapter 4. Look at this. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 and 13. This is Peter talking. <laughs> Beloved, do not be surprised at the what? Fiery. Did you know that God is fiery? Listen to to Peter. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. Zechariah 13. As though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. See, here's what happens so often to us God saves us, and then he puts us in this fire, and it's a strange fire. Like, what is this fire? I thought God loved me. I thought, I mean, I read it on a coffee cup, Jeremiah 29 11. He's got a plan in the future, and a hope. And it's to prosper me, not to destroy me. I mean, missing the fact that that verse was specifically applied to Israel. (laughs) But I've mentioned this many times. When people quote that verse, you wanna know what they miss? Israel was in 70 years of exile at that moment. So so God's saying, I've got a hope in the future, but it's gonna be 70 years. I'm gonna bring you back here because I got bigger stuff to do. But for now, you're going into exile, buddy because you walked away from me. And if I don't send you to exile, then you are not prepared to deliver the Messiah. So I got to put you in another fire. I saved you from the furnace of Egypt, but now I'm putting you in another fire to refine you. See, that's my problem a lot of times with us as believers is we think God loving us and prospering us is what we read in magazines and on Instagram. A better hope in the future, oh, sweet. Good looking man, good looking woman, 2.5 kids, house on some land, right? A job that's awesome, I never get cancer, and then I die in my sleep, right? Come on, somebody, tell me I'm lying. But that ain't what happens. Death still comes. Despair still comes. Divorce still comes. Debt still comes. And it's in those moments you're like, God, where are you? And God's saying, I'm right here in the fire with you. Because I'm using this to refine you. And that's what we have to understand about the process of how God works. In fact, let's go back to John. Jesus is going to sum this up for Peter. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. Now, John wrote this later, so he puts this parentheses in. This he said to show what kind of death he was to glorify God. So obviously when John wrote this, Peter had already died. And we know from church history that Peter also was crucified on a cross just like Jesus. And so when Jesus said, you're going to stretch out your hands, that's a familiar sight. But Peter got it. And church history tells us Peter said, I'm not worthy enough to be crucified like my Lord, so crucify me upside down. He got it. Because Jesus said to him, look at this, after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Follow me. And this is what we have to understand. When Jesus invites us Into relationship, when he invites us and says, Come and have breakfast with me, he's beginning a process that from that point on, where he will refine us, he will make us, he will turn up the fire in our life, where we have to go through this process of saying, Do I really love Jesus more than anything? Do I really want Jesus more than anything, Or did I watch this? Did I come to Jesus and use him as a means to an end to get what I really wanted? See, a lot of us see Jesus as a glorified Amazon driver. We used to say, "Genie," but nobody thinks about that anymore. You get Amazon. Where they show up to your house and say, "Here's the package," and then they leave. Jesus is not an Amazon driver where he's delivering you some good things and then you're like, thank you very much and then you get the thing but you don't care for the driver. No. See, God is the package. God is the gift. He's not a glorified delivery woman or delivery man where he's bringing you the gift. No, he is the gift. He is the good. You get God in heaven. You get the presence of God. This is what's crazy. You can't see him now because if you see him now, he will burn you up. Why? Because you used to have so many impurities that if he were to set fire to you now, it would consume you. But he's making you pure. He's making you pure. He's making you pure. And then when he restores you, then you'll be able to see him because there will be no more impurities in you anymore. You will be refined as gold. And then you'll get to see God, and you will understand that all this temporary suffering, as Paul calls it in Romans 8, was worth it because you get God. See, Jesus was telling Peter, right now, you've gone wherever you want to go, Peter. But a day is coming where you're not going to go where you want to go. See, that is how you know someone has been refined. Their will to go wherever they want has been burned out to where now their will is to go wherever he wants, even if it's to the cross. So here's my last point. Follow even through the fires and he will make you. I chose those two words there at the end because This is the second time that Jesus tells Peter, follow me. In fact, the first time Jesus said it, Matthew tells us in Matthew chapter four, Peter was fishing. In a very similar way, Jesus told him, cast his net on the other side. And I've mentioned this already many times, but Jesus says, follow me. And then he says, I will make you into fishers of men. And a lot of times people focus on the follow me, they focus on the fishers of men, but they miss the meat in the middle. And here's the meat Jesus said, I will make you. So let me ask you a question. Who does the making? Jesus. Jesus does the making. Jesus does the molding. Jesus does the purifying. All you and I gotta do is follow him. And that, to me, is the most amazing thing. The fact that Jesus would re-engage Peter at the moment of his greatest failure and would say, I'm not done making you, man. I know you messed up. But I remade this scenario so that I can re-engage with you at your moment of your greatest failure to show you I'm not done with you because I'm gonna make you. See, here's what I think so many of us forget. We think that when we came to God, it was about what we were gonna do for him. No, no. When you came to God, it was about what he was going to do for you. But the thing that he was going to do for you isn't the American dream. It's a heavenly dream where the spirit of God is coming and marking out everything in your body as temple space so that the presence of God can dwell with you forever. Here's the good news, church. If you're here today and you're saying, there's no way that God wants me on his, I'm too ugly. I'm too messed up. Let the story of Peter be an encouragement to you. Jesus wants to meet you at the place of your greatest failure and not, listen to me, not giving you a second chance because you just fail again. But he wants to bring the fire and convert you and bring life out of death and then keep on bringing life out of death. All you gotta do is follow. He'll do the making. Let's pray. Father, thank you. This story of your interaction with Peter is so comforting to me because it reminds me that you'll do the hard work you will purify us, you will change us, you will grow us, you don't just save us, you sanctify us, and you throw us into the fiery furnace of refinement because you're saving us from the fires of judgment. There's two fires. And there's some people here today, God, that are still headed towards the fire of judgment. They're still slaves in Egypt. They are still people that have not confessed their sin, have not been saved. And so, God, I pray for those right now that you would open their eyes to let them see and that they would respond in faith no one looking around or talking here as we close, if you've never trusted in Jesus, there's never been a moment in time in your life where God has delivered you from the fires of judgment, then today, you can confess and trust God and be saved. So with me, you don't have to pray this out loud, but if you wanna trust Christ, it goes like this. Say, Father, thank you for loving me that you sent Jesus in my place for my sin. I ask you to save me. I confess my sins and I believe in Christ. Forgive me. I'm trusting in Jesus alone. Now again, nobody looking around and talking, both of our physical locations. If you just prayed to trust Jesus, would you just simply lift your hand up? We got men and women gonna be walking around. Don't be distracted by them. They're gonna give you a gift, and when they do, you can put your hand down. But I would ask that no one else get up in this time and leave this, again, this is a holy moment. Thank you. But then those of us, like myself, who you've been saved, but this second fire has been so strange to you. These fiery trials that God keeps bringing have been so disillusioning for you. And maybe today the Spirit of God has said, I'm using these trials to consume what's consuming you. The patterns, the lifestyles, the thoughts, the actions that you're still enslaved to. Because remember, God's not just trying to get you out of Egypt, he's trying to get Egypt out of you. And he does that through this purifying fire. So maybe that's you. And if you want to come down front, both of our campuses, we've got people down front, our prayer team that would love to pray with you. So if you wanna do that, you can get up and move or just right there where you are. Say, Father, I submit myself again to your loving hands. As you turn up the fire in my life, would you purify me? Make me holy. Thank you for these trials because without them, I would forget that you're making me, but make me, make me more like Jesus. Father, thank you again. You are such a good God. You love us enough to not just deliver us out of the fire that would destroy us in an eternal sense, but you would also bring your refining fire to consume the things in us that still don't honor you. And all of us, just like Peter, have to go through this process so that we can be trusted with the mantle of leadership, so that we can lead our homes well, we can lead in the community well, We can lead in the church well. So thank you for being a gracious God and loving us enough to purify us, help us to follow you, and we trust you to make us more like Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Love you, church.